happy to have with us Dr. Nathan Seem today. Um, he's the Associate Chief, a Senior Research Physician, and the Director of the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship uh, at the NIH Clinical, Cancer, or Clinical Center. Um, I have uh, considered myself very lucky to get to know Nathan a little bit better over the last year or so since I've come down to Maryland. Um, I think he has a lot of uh, insight um, into all sorts of things, but I, I was specifically interested in having him come speak with us today on this idea of effectively consuming medical information in the era of social media. Um, I suspect uh, many of you may have had the same struggles I had for the last year or so, which is that much of what we are learning specifically nowadays about COVID is coming out through press releases and Twitter reports. Um, and and as, a, as a physician and as a physician scientist and as someone who wants to make well-informed decisions, how do you kind of process that? Uh, and what do you make of this stuff happening in social media? And so I couldn't have uh, thought of anyone better than Dr. Seem to come and speak here on this. So I'm very happy to have you here today. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure. And you know, I have a lot of friends in Maryland, so I'm always that excited to, to meet with you all. So, so, so thank you. Um, yeah, as, as you said, uh, I want to talk about, you know, the term is medical information because, you know, some of it's not exactly scientific literature here. So I use a more general term. Uh, and hopefully, you know, this is an evolving field and an area of uncertainty. So, you know, if you have comments along the way as we discuss um, some of the, the history and the quote unquote data, uh, I'd love for you all to chime in. Um, so let me go ahead and get started here. So yeah, in terms of disclosures, uh, I always have to do the usual uh, federal government disclosure that, that what, what I say here is are my own views and, and not do not reflect the government. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, also, I'm a I'm editor in chief of ATS Scholars, so um, I receive a stipend from the American Grass Society, and I will show some of the content related to to that work um, as well, so, and and how we think about media in the context of a, of a peer-reviewed journal. So, in terms of learning objectives, we want to talk about go back in a pre-COVID uh, time talk about uh, the historical preferences for physicians for consuming medical information, talk about the, the various platforms that have sort of, you know, uh, rapidly proliferated over, uh, over the last decade or so, and then discuss the pros and cons. And then finally, talk, as Andy mentioned, about the impact of COVID-19 and social media, how that's impacting physician preferences, how that may make durable changes in the way we consume medical information. So, you know, as, as I was getting ready for this talk, you know, you think about this, it was, it was a year ago, it was almost exactly a year ago when we were getting into this phase, right, where um, the WHO uh, had declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Um, and then uh, we were all, I look at this, I, I printed this out, I, I took the screenshot uh, two days ago and I was looking here, March 17th, right, March 17th, one year prior on, on St. Patrick's Day, there were 1,399 new cases in the United States. The seven-day average was less than 700. You know, we get excited when the state of Maryland had less than 1,000 positive cases these days when that, when that happened recently. So we were all clinicians pre preparing to care for critically ill patients with a new disease. We're trying to figure out if we have enough uh, equipment, we have enough ICU beds, we have enough staff. Um, and I think we all had uh, and you're also worried about uh, obviously getting infected yourself, you worry about your family, you worry about your colleagues, uh, your interprofessional colleagues. So um, I think it was, a, it was an incredibly stressful time that I think we'll, we'll remember for the rest of our lives. Um, but I, actually, I, wouldn't, I would love to get, uh, open this up just for, for this question to say, you know, when we were here, uh, again, a year ago, what resources were you using to keep date when again there's a new pandemic there's not much data and and we're all scared so I don't, I don't know if anybody wanted to comment hey, this is Kieran I'm one of the critical care medicine fellows um, okay. I feel like, um, there was so much we, we try to think as as fellows to kind of help each other out a little bit we had this um, kind of website that we transiently worked on that we all kind of uploaded our own little chapters after reviewing as much of the literature as we could. Um, I think the CDC at the, at the beginning too, we looked at that, but I, 
think we have relied a lot upon each other reading things and hearing things to update um, one another. Yeah. Yeah. I think, thank you for that, Kieran. I think that's a great point. We'll talk a little bit about that and historical preferences. And that's maybe a reason that social media is actually very, very um, sort of uh, popular because, you know, your colleagues, the people who go, you go through with, the people you've been in the trenches with, a lot of times those are your, your best resources. So yeah, thank you for that stuff in the chat. Let's see, I'm gonna try to pull up the chat. Hopkins dashboard, CDC website, Gordo's, shout out just to, yeah. Uh, MedPage today, Twitter, yeah, okay. So I, I think anybody else for go on. Pre and post COVID Google Scholar. Yeah, the Flare email, Van, that's a great point. Uh, Mass General uh, put together an email with, with updates. So that's right. Um, I think those are, that's a great place to start. And so I, I want to step back pre COVID and then we'll, we'll get into uh, COVID a little later. But if you just step back and, you know, uh, we look at the, the traditional preferences. Um, for consumption of medical information. So I think I'm in a good place. So I'm sort of still in my mid-career time. So we have people who trained earlier than I have and then later than I have. And then people who trained earlier than I have, they relied on textbooks and peer-reviewed journals, right? Everybody talked about how they read Harrison's. Uh, and the, the, the textbooks were, each chapter was written by experts in that area. They were reviewed by the editors of those, textbooks and published and updated every several years. And, you know, here's some of the ones that are you commonly see on an intensivist bookshelf or pulmonary critical care person, right? Harrison's, um, you see, or when it repay, Fishman's pulmonary, Tobin's principles of practice in mechanical ventilation, things like that. And then the other thing was, of course, peer reviewed journal articles. It's, you would, back in the old days, get in your mailbox, uh, you would uh, have a paper version, you'd open up uh, the issue and, and go through it. You can see I took a picture a while back and you see some of those are still in plastic. So what happens these days, right, is when a big enough pile gets on your desk, you either get shamed and say, I'm gonna go ahead and read some of these or they just go into the recycling bin. Um, so uh, so that's, that was it you know, for many years, though that was the standard. And I was trying to go back and, and review, you know, what were physicians looking for? And there, there are a few papers this one's from 1997. So again, this is, uh, this is the largest meta-analysis of the time um, that um, was uh, 12 studies of over 1,800 physicians that were surveyed. And this was across the 70s and the nine, to the 90s. So this is really a pre-internet era study. And so not surprisingly, textbooks and peer-reviewed journals uh, were consistently ranked as the most prefer preferred sources of clinical information. Um, it's important, I think Kieran alluded to it earlier, that colleagues were the third most preferred source. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that um, later um, as we talk about COVID as well. And then, so there was a, a study a few years later, and now we're getting into the internet era. And so this was a study that was actually a survey administered by FAPS. And so again, that's fascinating because when I talk to of our junior trainees, they have no idea what a, what a fax machine is. Uh, so this was a, a survey of 2,200 office-based U.S. physicians. Um, and they're asking, you know, what do you use the internet for in regard to medical information? Um, and what's interesting is predominantly they were using it for email, right? And so what does that mean? They were emailing their colleagues. They were asking them questions because that they felt was the most reliable information they could get. Again, that was still early in the internet era. We didn't have great websites that were sort of go-to websites. So only 29% were using it for specific patient information. And then in the survey, they were asked, what is the single most important factor for you in using the internet? And it's sort of credibility of the information you're receiving. And again, that's why people were um, leaning on email. Ease of access, they'd email their colleagues, the colleagues would email them back. And ease of search. You know, this was before, you know, Google and YouTube had these, um, you know, uh, proprietary algorithms that, optim that, you know, that optimize their search engines. So um, you can see it was, it was a different time, but credibility, ease of access, and ease of search were definitely the big three. 
What's interesting now, then I, I was looking at this, this was an editorial uh, almost 10 years ago now, where uh, Charles Prober and Chip Heath from Stanford were pushing that, you know, medicine has been behind the times in embracing technology, right? Um, we were in, uh, that was 2012, uh, and students were being taught in, 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 with large lectures, roughly the same way they were taught. I've highlighted that part when the, when the Wright brothers were tinkering at Kitty Hawk. So you know, there was a real push then to say, you know, we need to get with the times in medicine and we need to maximize the use of all the, the platforms of technology and not be so stuck on the, the old model. Um, I think that's changed a lot in the last few years. And so what we're seeing now is really a massive generational change in, in media use for learning. And you know, I think we're, we're right in the midst of it and, and uh, we need to understand this better. So going from the textbooks and peer reviewed articles to now digital media, right? It's so common you walk into uh, any sort of uh, classroom, you're seeing uh, trainees taking students, trainees taking notes on their laptop or their tablet. And now even at the level of the point of care now, right? You're seeing uh, physicians, uh, hopefully you're not on the phone, on a tablet and on your laptop at the same time as, as this physician is. But um, certainly like this has become much more of the standard. And so now we're in an era where our consumption can actually meet our preferences. And when I go back to those papers from the late 90s and the early 2000s, right? You can be in the clinic on your smartphone. You may Google something. Maybe you're in the ICU or in the Bronx suite and you're gonna do a procedure that you haven't done in a while. You may quickly look up the steps on YouTube. Maybe you have a question uh, and you can't find the answer easily in any of these resources and you're gonna put it on Twitter and maybe somebody who follows you or you follow will answer that question in real time. So now we really are at a place where two of those three things that we were talking about, ease of access and ease of search are there. But the thing that's different, obviously in medicine, you know, we, you hear all the talk about fake news and politics and so forth. Accuracy of the information, this is about patients, this is life and death. Is the information that you're consuming credible? And obviously in medicine, that's the highest bar of anything when we talk about the, the information you're consuming online. So during this time, right, you got a proliferation of open access content. And so it's great to democratize this process and make information available to people. Um, so this, from this review now um, uh, seven years ago, more than 5,000 open access journals were launched in the early 2010s. Now, uh, at least 300 active free open access or foam critical care websites uh, are online. And then uh, I was counting on YouTube recently and I just gave up counting, but there was more than 300 critical care YouTube channels uh, right now. So I wanna talk about, as we talk about all these different sort of sources of information, foam over the, over the last decade has really, as I just talked about in this slide, uh, really uh, uh, advanced uh, quite quickly. And so I think one of the, the first people, one of the leaders in that field was Chris Nixon, and he uh, does a great job with it. Life in the Fastlane blog, I'm sure many of you've read. I think I, I was reading, I think it was in 2019, they had more than 28 million unique pages. So it's very, very popular. Um, and he, uh, in this paper, defined it as a, a, a dynamic collection of online tools and resources an interdisciplinary community of students and clinicians and, and an ethos. So I think they're really talking about that sort of community of sharing information, kind of, kind of as you talk about working with your colleagues. But I think the other thing that he's done that sometimes uh, gets lost um, is making sure to emphasize that it was an educational adjunct that provides contextual or asynchronous content that augments traditional ed education as opposed to standalone uh, sources. And then he wrote another uh, uh, post uh, a couple years ago talking about, you know, when you talk about foam, it, can, it doesn't matter what type of media, it can be a WordPress blog, it can be a podcast, a video, you can provide, you know, threads on, on Twitter that are, that are educational. Um, and I really like that he pointed out, there's, we really need more data, right? There is a lack of good research 
establishing either benefit or harm to learners. And so we, um, uh, we certainly think that that's an area that's ripe uh, for further study uh, because there's certainly a lot of questions that can be asked about it. And hopefully maybe some of this talk today will spark some of that interest. So now I'm gonna fast forward to a more recent uh, survey of trainees and how trainees are keeping up today. Um, so this was uh, a little different audience as a psychiatry residents as opposed to uh, critical care trainees. And um, they were at an in-person conference. I, rem I remember back in the days when we actually went to in-person conferences. Uh, and they were asked, you know, how do you use the following to inform clinical practice? And then they have, you see, never, very, rarely, rarely, occasionally, frequently, or very frequently. Websites, and they, they were clear that they're talking about a search engine. So you're talking about entering a term into Google or into YouTube. Websites based on a search engine, the majority are using very frequently, right? Textbooks, the traditional way of learning, frequently used, either print or online. Abstracts, the predominant, the leading answer is occasionally. And journals, print or online, again, occasionally. So you can see what we were talking about before, what the, 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 the papers from the late 90s, the early 2000s, there's a shift there um, to more web-based information as, as a go-to for, for, for medical information. And so stepping back, as we think about that change, Clearly, I think, I think it's pretty obvious. We want ease of search. We want ease of access. Getting information at the point of care is great, right? We can't remember everything all the time. Um, but the thing that, 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 that worries me and, and worries many of us are the resources you're getting that are based on proprietary algorithms, are they accurate? Um, and, um, and again, you know, medicine, the bar has to be at, at its highest because we're talking about patients and, and patients' outcomes are at stake. So people have actually started doing research on this topic. So how useful is unsupervised YouTube use for medical education, right? So there are papers, they all follow a similar sort of approach that I'll walk through. There are papers about learning EKGs on YouTube, learning chest tube insertion techniques uh, via YouTube. And so the, the basic um, uh, way these papers are done is they search YouTube for a term, they go through the first 10 pages of English language educational videos, and they, they assess quality. And quality is based on a checklist they've made uh, ahead of time. They typically have three people score them um, for quality, and then they report their findings. And so there, there are some consistent themes in the findings of these sort of papers. One, uh, there's wide variation in quality. Number two, I think this is really important, the number of views of a video uh, does not correlate with quality. Again, YouTube is using search engine optimization uh, in a way that, that they don't have a way to filter for accuracy there or, or uh, it's easily. So, um, uh, so the number of views does, does not correlate with quality. Uh, and, but if you're trying to figure out, again, I think a lot of times we think about what should we refer our learners to? Videos by institutions or hospitals are more likely if you haven't watched the individual video yourself, and there's so many of them, you don't who has time to do that, they're more likely to be higher quality. So again, that's something you should think about as you're referring your learners to, to content. So this is something that I think many of us find very interesting and, and, and we worry about. And this was a, uh, a famous social science experiment, and I think it became much more popular, many of us heard this for the first time on a Freakonomics podcast and went back and re read the original paper. But this was um, the, an experiment that was conducted at a, at a high-end Northern California uh, grocery store where uh, this group set up a tasting booth with this brand of jams. And so one weekend they set it up with an extensive 24 selection of variety of jam flavors and they, and, you know, people will come up to that booth and they would offer them free samples and you know they were trying to see who who would who would buy them and then they another weekend they came and they offered six um and so what was interesting about this is that more customers stopped at the extensive selection display uh, however uh, 
10 times, uh, ten, uh, tenfold more consumers actually bought one of the jams, which was obviously the point. If they were in the limited, the six option tasting uh, booth as opposed to the 24. And so, you know, I, I think about that in the context of, 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 of the web. And, you know, it's overwhelming your Twitter feed. The, you're not going to go through five pages of Google to try and try to answer your question. And so we have access to all these thousands of websites now. But if you find bad information, a lot of times you're just going to stop because you're overwhelmed. And so I think as we think about it for our learners, uh, we don't want them to be overwhelmed by options. And so I do think that, that we have an obligation and some places do this well to guide them to the best resources. Now, we're not gonna have the time to sort of keep curating lists. You know, ATS has a fellows reading list, other groups, uh, ACCP does stuff like that as well. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, try to use the best resources you can to guide your learners is important because if you're just gonna end up, you know, Googling your term at the point of care, you're, there's, a, there's a good chance you're gonna get overwhelmed with bad information. And so the, the, another piece of good news, people are actually starting to look at this, right? They're, they're developing criteria for quality uh, web-based learning. And so there were paper, that, the first paper at the bottom of the screen there was done in a pathology journal. And then uh, three years ago now, Woolbrink and colleagues published this in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, where they looked at the quality of critical care medicine education websites. And they used several criteria to measure quality. One, you know, you have to have an author listed, did they have a disclosure of any conflicts? They measured quality, and again, that's going to be subjective. Measure the currency of information. Do you see a timestamp there? Um, and is it updated, or is you know really old, out of date content taken down? You know, when they found you know, for example, harm for certain therapies. Um, is there an option to comment or interact? Um, high quality media were the the, the major criteria. And they got to a point where they identified that they wanted to study 97 free English language critical care websites. Um, and they posted a list, and this is not my list, so like people have you know, asked me about this, and this is their top 10 critical care websites. It's in alphabetical order. They didn't sort of rank them one to 10. They said these are 10 high quality websites. Um, and Maryland's own critical care projects on there, so shout out to you all. Um, uh, as, a, as a high quality critical care website. And I think the point isn't for me, each, any individual website, it's you know, trying to go through a deliberative process to, to assess the quality of this content and then send, send learners or colleagues to trusted uh, resources. So again, now we're, we're sort of going through, there's, it's just, it's a, it's a rapidly changing time. And so I, would, I think this table I modified from from a, a blog post on Biomed Central from Adrian Wong and colleagues, walk through some of the differences between traditional journals and foam. And I've added a, a column for open access journals because of, again, the proliferation there. Um, in a traditional journal, right, the process of getting something published is to submit it through the publisher. Um, you know, you have a cost to subscribe to look at it. You know, you get frustrated as articles behind a paywall, right? So either you as a person or your institution has to subscribe to it. There's a peer review process. And so that takes time, right? There, the peer review, you get a decision, you get sent back for revisions and that can take several months before it actually gets published. Um, there's always a conflict of interest required. And so you have to disclose that uh, if there is any. And then with, with foam, some of these, these websites we've talked about, the content producers post content on their website. Good news is there's no cost consumer. It's freely uh, available. There's no peer review process. So there's not vetting in that way, but it's instantaneously published. Um, some of the higher quality websites do report conflict of interest disclosures, some don't. Uh, and now, as we saw that, that third category that we talked about, open access journals, has some elements of both, right? You submit it through a publisher, the consumer has no cost because the author has to pay the open access charges. Uh, it's uh, freely available to, to readers because obviously hence the name open access. There is peer review just like a traditional journal. So it takes some time to publish um, and a conflict of interest disclosure is required. So now I wanted to kind of talk about 
yeah, how COVID-19 entered this fray. Because we were in a phase of, of uh, a place of rapid change in the way we consume content even before COVID. I think it's only accelerated things kind of as, as Andy alluded to in the beginning. So obviously we were watching those initial cases in China, in Italy, in New York, and we were all knowing it was coming to us. Um, and we wanted to be prepared, but there was a paucity of data. And as I showed you in the last slide, right? Peer review journals, you need data, you need a peer review process, that often takes some time. Uh, and uh, there were no guidelines for care of COVID patients because there's no data to base them off. And so I, I wanna highlight a few of the sort of early papers. You know, so it was, it was you know, I think you'll go back, you remember that time, right? We were worried, there was a question of, do we not put patients on high flow or non-invasive because of aerosolization and risk to your staff? Do you intubate patients early before they crash because of that? And so um, then uh, Gatnoni, obviously one of the world's experts in ARDS has done some of the seminal work in proning and, and has uh, uh, been a leader in the field of ARDS for many years. Uh, had worked with some colleagues um, in Northern Italy uh, to publish a, a, a letter to the editor in the Blue Journal in late March, talked about that experience in Lombardy when they were surging and talked about their first 16 patients, obviously a very low end, and describing that they're seeing that the respiratory compliance wasn't what they usually see in ARDS. But again, there were differences in practices back then. Um, and then they published soon after that, that got a lot of traction, uh, went viral on social media. Um, then there was management of, of COVID-19 respiratory disease in, in JAMA. And similarly that you can see in this table talked about two phenotypes in L and an H and an L is the kind where it's different than our typical lung protective strategies for ARDS saying you don't need lower tidal volumes, you hire PEEP is ineffective and actually may be harmful. Um, and so that obviously concerned a lot of people and practices were changing due to that, again, because there wasn't much out there. One of our, our fellows, senior fellows, Shreya Kant did a great job sort of summarizing the data as it came out. And so I've uh, borrowed one of her slides and, and, and modified it slightly to show, then, you know, over time, several papers came out and really showing similar lung mechanics in COVID-19 to prior ARDS publications to the the lung safe database. Um, and so it really looked like, you know, there's obviously heterogeneity uh, in, the, in the lung mechanics in patients with COVID, just like there are in, in many uh, cases of ARDS before we knew what COVID was. So um, that kind of went away from, from those initial fears um, uh, uh, that we should be ventilating these patients completely differently. And so, you know, it, again, social media was certainly part of that. Uh, there was certainly a, a journal article. I, one thing I, I forgot to mention, so that in that JAMA article, almost 300,000 people viewed that article. Now, if you, if you go like a, a typical metric for a journal article being viewed, if you see more than 1,000 people view it, that's actually really good. Um, so you can see there were a lot of people who were either in the ICU or at home, their labs were shut down, some of the other work, they were doing telemedicine, people were on social media, people were refreshing their phones. And so the, clearly the use accelerated and a lot of the early takes were propagated. Um, again, that goes back to what we talked about, ease of access, you can be on your phone, be on Twitter, but you also, that, that the colleagues there, these are peers from cities with early cases were sharing their experience and you're trying to learn from that experience. Um, and so again, much of that was thoughtful. And you know, even if later maybe didn't bear out, was came from a good place. But there were a lot of hot takes during that time period. Um, and I'll show one here. This is from the, the noted intensivist Elon Musk uh, in, in April, you know, talking about how the, the vast majority of ventilators are not intertracheal. I'm not sure exactly what they're talking, he's talking about, but um, jamming a pipe down a patient's throat and driving in pressure and pure oxygen is definitely not how we evolve. And I think we all agree with that. Um, my personal choice would be with the mask, with uh, assuming he's talking about non-invasive with moderate pressures. I'm not sure how he titrates his inspiratory pressures. And he just puts them on 50% O2 in his opinion. So again, I'm sort of joking because this is Elon Musk, obviously not a physician, but there were again, a lot of takes or takes about this being high altitude pulmonary edema, 
and and again with 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 a paucity of information with people worried and and on social media a lot of these things uh became viral and so i, I think I, I go back to that 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 it's not surprising to me and i think it's uh, we're looking for we're looking to our colleagues for for insight right that paper from 1997 uh, you know almost 25 years ago now the third most trusted source would be your colleagues. And in that paper, they talk about here, informal person-to-person -person advice seeking between physicians is, is an important mode of, uh, important source of information. And in talks here in this respect, their information seeking behavior most clearly resembles engineers and nurses rather than academic scientists who preferred formal publications. They talk about these invisible college that, that that where informal communication is important that's been well well um, established in the social sciences so um, we as physicians do look for our clinician colleagues to sort of provide some of that insight and and now with twitter it's made it easier right like you can ask a question and maybe somebody who is a world expert in something might follow you or you follow them and they may respond about a challenging clinical topic rather than doing what what they did in the 90s and what many of us do just asking your your colleague in the in the adjacent office so you know so there's twitter but there's so many other changes that have occur, occurred in a during covid that were predating covid but have been again accelerated by that you clearly couldn't in march of 2020 and even in the, those next several months, relying on peer-reviewed articles. There's a lag in publication, as I, as I showed you on that table, right? So now preprints have become very common, right? Here is a preprint about uh, tocilizumab, which is something uh, many of us have sort of struggled with. And hospitals are asking everybody, what are you going to do? What's the recommendation? And waiting for the peer-reviewed paper. But you can't wait in the middle of this pandemic. You're under a lot of pressure. And now places are... are providing press releases, right? There's the, the study of colchicine uh, in, in outpatients. And so the Montreal Heart Institute puts out a press release that's a couple of paragraphs. And you're supposed to decide, well, am I gonna use this therapy or not? This isn't our tradition of textbooks and peer-reviewed journal articles. These are preprints and press releases. And so I wanna talk a little bit about preprints um, if you're not familiar with them. So I've learned a lot about them over the last year. So um, MedArchive and BioArchive are the, 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 the leading preprint servers. And these are free online archives and authors can upload their complete unpublished manuscripts to these servers. Um, they're open access, so any of us can look at them. Um, and MedArchive and BioArchive were founded by Cold Spring Harbor, Yale, and the British Medical Journal in 2019. Uh, the manuscripts have been have not been peer reviewed, and I think if you can see here on the on the right, the they make this very clear. Preprints are preliminary reports of work that have not been certified for peer review. They're not to be relied on to guide clinical practice. Should not be uh, reported established information. Well, I've seen a lot of reports of preprints, and they have been used to guide clinical practice and they have been reported as established information. And so it's easy to, you put that disclaimer, but just like on social media, the initial inaccurate tweet goes viral, the retraction or the correction, nobody sees. Um, you have to worry about, about uh, the information being disseminated and its accuracy. And so, you know, I think social media plus preprints, it's, it's uh, that's certainly been, uh, very common now in, in, during COVID. And I think there is a benefit here, right? An author gets to uh, disseminate their own work. They can get it out quickly and widely. They're not relying on a journal to do so. But the con is it's not vetted by any peer review process. Um, there's a risk of spreading inaccurate information before that formal vetting process goes. And again, we're talking about patients. We're talking about clinical care. Patients are going to be impacted if you act on that. And obviously, we have a, the highest bar for accuracy when it comes to patient care. So I struggle with that. And I think, you know, one of the things is that people are always looking for guidance, right? Um, and 
you know, I'm showing here a few of the popular critical pulmonary critical care guidelines over the last five years, the ATS, European Society of Intensive Care, and SCCM guidelines for mechanical ventilation and ARDS, surviving sepsis guidelines are all uh, always very popular and widely read. There's the ACCP and ATS uh, liberation from mechanical ventilation in, in critically ill adults, and then the diagnosis and treatment of community-acquired pneumonia, which is from IDSA and ATS. What do these uh, guidelines have in common other than being very popular, very cited, very highly read? They take a long time to put together, right? There are specific criteria and a process. You know, ATS uses a grade process to evaluate these. Um, and, uh, and so um, these take years to develop. And obviously we're sitting here trying to take care of COVID people and we're seeing stuff on social media. We don't have years to wait. Andy, if you see anything in the chat, let me know that I, I pause. I'm not paying attention to it, okay? Feel free to, to interrupt. So, um, and so one of the things I've been part of this group, we've been doing the, the, the COVID-19 treatment guidelines. And I think actually, you know, we're sort of wondering why, why are we doing a guideline when um, I think Dr. Fauci and Lane in the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease thought we're gonna need a guideline, a trusted resource for people um, as this evolves. And so, the way it works, I can give a little inside baseball to this since I'm part of that, because I think it's been actually a very thoughtful process and been helpful. Um, so we have four different teams. We have a critical care team and we have other teams looking at you know, antivirals, anti-inflammatories and so forth. And, and they're critical care, infectious disease. We have experts from hematology because you know anticoagulations come up. We have nephrologists, we have uh, OBs related to pregnancy issues. And many are representing the leading professional society of, uh, of their group. Now, our first guideline wasn't released till April 21st. So again, you know, uh, it was about a, 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 you know, uh, a month from where we were before that uh, the pandemic was uh, declared by the WHO. So, you know, a little later than we wanted, but uh, certainly I think uh, early enough to help people. Um, and in terms of process, this was, you know, obviously COVID being a dynamic disease, this was a, a very dynamic process. So we had a lot of meetings. Uh, we continued to, we just had one today. There are at least bi-weekly meeting, but there were all also emergency sort of ad hoc meetings on weekends or nights often uh, to review the latest information, especially as there was a flurry of new information coming out. And so our groups will review all the new papers. You know, the critical care team will review all the critical care papers and we'll have a team meeting once a week and that the, our panel is led by Laura, Laura Evans, um, uh, who's at the University of Washington now. Uh, and, and then we have the whole, I think it's about 55 of us meet on uh, Fridays to review everything and each team reports back. Um, but I think one of the things that's been nice about this, you know, I don't know what to do with a preprint. I don't know what to do with a press release, but what's been nice is we've had the opportunity having this group to be able to reach out to the authors of these things, and they've met with us individually. You know, Peter Horby and the recovery group met with us before the, the dexamethasone paper, and they presented their slides. And we had we read the preprint, but then we, they presented their slides, and there was an opportunity to ask them questions. So it's not as good as peer review, um, but it was a, a thoughtful group uh, of experts being able to query um, the investigator. So I thought that, that that is much more informed than just you know, people reading preprints on their own. And then we will follow these things. Uh, we continue to do so, debate among panelists, and then groups will be assigned to write recommendations. Then we have a process for voting for recommendations and then rating the strength and the quality of them. And then each of the different teams write the rationale for individual recommendations. So, and this is sort of much more an on the fly uh, guideline approach to the way that the guidelines you typically see in site uh, were, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's worked. Um, you can see there's a ton of, uh, Alice Powell, I want to thank, who keeps us on track, who's the executive secretary of our group. She provided me this download data, which is working on that for a paper that's going to be in Annals soon. But you can see over 12 million page views of this, and I was shocked when I saw 289,000 views for, for Gattinoni's paper. Um, and you can see, you know, when they first came out in April and May, it was almost 2 million views. But even in these last months, you're seeing you know, over 1.5 million views 
this data was, I think, of March 1st. So that last month drop off is just, it's a partial month. So there's certainly been an appetite. Again, I think having a guideline is a place where talking about a, a trusted source, uh, that's a source all the people have to dis disclose their conflicts of interest. That should all be available on the website. Yeah. Uh, Carl had a, a question in the chat for one slide back, or two slides back, I guess, about the um, preprints. And he just asked if uh, many peer reviewed journals are actually rejecting um, <laughs> papers that come out, yeah, that come out as preprints um, because the data has already been disclosed publicly. You know, it's a, we had a, the, we, we've had debates about this. All the ATS journal editors meet, the four of us meet and talk about these things. And we've not decided to do that. There is controversy about what to, to do about that. And again, you, you, I think it, Carl makes a good point because you know that <laughs> the genie's out of the bottle and you, how, how do you grab that? That they're so, they're so widely used now. I don't know of anybody who is making a unilateral policy. I, I, I don't know enough about it, so I may be wrong. But, but at the ATS journals, we will take the, the preprints. That's right. It's a good question because, again, it's, a, it's fascinating. And I don't know exactly what to do with this. Um, so, you know, I still go back to peer review, and uh, it's, it, it's flawed. It's clearly flawed. If you get bad reviewers and they give you bad, info, uh, you know, poor reviews, and it's really up to the editors and the associate editors to sort of walk through those things. And, you know, I've gotten reviews of papers I've submitted. I've been very frustrated. It didn't seem like the people read the paper. But I will say, every time I got in a paper through peer review, the paper was better than when it started. Um, and so I think it's still our best choice for trusted sources, but acknowledging it takes time. And sometimes you don't have time. So that's where I think things like these dynamic guidelines may be very helpful. Um, and I, I've enjoyed reading this on the right here. It's a screenshot of, a, of a, an article in the New York Times uh, from a few years back that, you know, peer review is the worst way to judge research, except for all the others, right? Um, so it's worth a read if you have time to look at that. But I, th I think one thing we can definitely learn, um, uh, those of us who, who do editing for journals, is that modern journals need to learn lessons from high quality non-peer reviewed content, right? Um, I think foam has really uh, shown us a lot. You, you know, you may have a model that's a subscription model, but you can provide open access to certain content, right? Um, the podcast I showed, the uh, social media, you can still engage with your readers and give them uh, uh, and disseminate information rapidly um, uh, that's useful to them. And I think you have to, you have to reach out to your learners and to your readers. Um, you can't sort of just stay back with the old model that worked 20, 30 years ago, um, but you can still honor a thoughtful peer review process. And so just talking about, so again, I'm, there are lots of great podcasts. There's lots of great content. I'm just telling you about the stuff that I know. You know, I started the, uh, the Out of the Blue podcast with, with David Kaufman several years back. And now uh, my friend Mike Lanspa at Utah uh, is one of the podcast moderators. And this was a good listen with uh, Sanjay Chokramal, who never sleeps. And he's, he's had to be the, the straight go-to guy for every single submission to the Blue Journal related to COVID. Uh, and so he's, you know, looked at I think it's four figures worth of publications. I don't know how he does it. And so just sort of given the backstory and sort of walking through some of the papers and, and thinking about it and contextualizing it, and that's something that foam does well and that journals should do better. And so I think you see an improvement there. Um, I'm showing this, I didn't have time to find a good infographic from another journal, but so the one thing we do in ATS Scholar, you want your papers to stand out on someone's Twitter timeline. And so many journals and people are using infographics, right? And so this was from a paper uh, from Quinn Capers about implicit bias training. And there's the tweet, right? And then one of our uh, media team members, Dina, put together this nice infographic in Canva and put it and that's embedded in the tweet. So again, just some of these simple things to make, um, make your content more user friendly and to drive people to that content to engage them as they're scrolling through this end endless Twitter timeline. I think we've, we're starting to learn those lessons at, uh, at a journal level. And it, it matters, right? So, so there, here's a paper about, uh, about tweeting and research publicity and downstream citations. This was in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2019. Um, and so the authors of this study 
looked at over 15,000 articles in 84 pulmonary critical care journals and looked at over a seven year period. Um, and they wanted to compare articles that were tweeted about by the authors versus those that were not. And they, they measured the number of related, the tweets related to the article and they could, uh, they used the all metric search engine to do so. How many citations for each of these papers within a year and total citations across that seven year time period. And so what they found it, author tweeted articles had many more downstream tweets, which is not surprising. But what's also interesting is they had more citations. Um, and we'll talk about why that's important in a moment. About 33 citations versus 22 in the non-author tweeted articles. And so if you're getting your article seen and you're getting your article cited, that's actually a win for the journal as well as a win for the author. I'm going to talk about that now. So, um, you know, it's important to understand like how the game is played, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, right? So when a, a journal editor is often measured, the journal success is measured by the impact factor, right? And so even as someone who's, who's writing a paper, you want to be in a New England journal, which has a huge impact factor. Well, you know, the top ones in pulmonary critical care are Lancet Respiratory Medicine and the, the Blue Journal, American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. That impacts, if you're getting published in higher impact journals, that helps you with promotion. Like when you're going for associate professor and professor, there are lots of effects for both the journal, saying the higher the impact, the better the journal is, as well as, as the authors. They want to submit to higher impact journals but what you can see is the impact factor has got a numerator and a denominator. So I, I talked about that last article because it, tweeting about articles increases your citations. I think, unfortunately, what we've seen lately is some journals are sort of gaming the system. They're reducing that denominator. So if you publish less articles, then your impact factor goes up too. But at the end of the day, as those of us in medicine, we want to see more good articles, right? Uh, and so gaming the system isn't really very helpful. So that's why there's been a lot of criticism. Should we get rid of the impact factor? And but what's a better number-based metric? So, but while we have the impact factor, getting articles cited more often is good for the journal. It's good for the authors. Um, these tweets bring attention to the articles. And then obviously, to us in the medical community. They're good papers. I want to be able to see them. And there's a lot of articles I'll see on Twitter that I wouldn't have seen otherwise unless I'd seen it on my timeline. Um, and so people, as they're moving away from, uh, from impact factor, journals are looking at other ways to, to measure attention to articles. And so one thing, again, these are companies that have proprietary algorithms and they're, they're making money off it some way. So I'm not sure what the right answer is, but there's an all metric attention score that's uh, used as an alternative to citations. And it, 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 you see this donut with a number. And so the number is higher than 100, that's good. Uh, and so the donut colors are based on a variety of where it's getting attention. Is it getting it on blogs, on Twitter, um, in Google Plus, LinkedIn? And so this is not really measuring citations or you know, how excellent the science is, but the attention. But the good news about it is it doesn't discourage articles from publishing more art, uh, journals from publishing more articles, gaming an impact factor system. And so just showing examples like this 115 here is mostly blue and that means it's got most of its attention on Twitter. This 37 here is mostly yellow. So it's getting most of the attention from blogs. So again, it's not measuring the quality but it's a different metric that's as we're trying to move away from impact factor for the reasons that we discussed before. So again, it's, it's a change in the system. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves. You know, and people have looked at this, like, is there an association between citations, your altmetric score and your, and your views, right? Uh, and so a group of authors looked at it from four high impact factor uh, journals in 2014. What was the association? And here you see number one is the most cited article and number 99 is the 99th most cited article. You can see there's really not much correlation between the citations of the article and the article views, and then that altmetric attention score. So what's the right way to measure this? You know, I think that's uh, to be determined, uh, but there are problems with everything that's being used right now. And I want to start wrapping up, but I think, you know, one of the things for me is, you know, I want to show that seesaw. There are definitely pros and cons. I think for me, the, 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 uh, of social media and posts going viral. But I think we, the goal would be to have more thoughtful voices on social media, 
right? Um, and so I, I, uh, I've been, you know, uh, worried about this for some time. And I worked with a couple of my colleagues, Lakshmi Santosh at UCSF and Chris Carroll, who is quite prodigious and is one of the early uh, um, leaders of MedEd on, on Twitter. And we wrote a paper about tips and traps for trainees traversing social media. So if you are interested, but a little nervous, I encourage you to read it. Um, I think what's interesting to us is that, you know, even people who grew up on social media, digital natives, so to speak, are reluctant, often reluctant to share their views. And is that related to, you know, you don't want to get trolled, you're worried about sort of imposter syndrome, that you're not an expert. But early, we, we felt very strongly, we want that, that uh, your expertise and unique perspective inform the debate about important medical issues. And if lots of smart people aren't out there, that lets the uninformed views predominate. And so that really is important in fighting misinformation. And so here we tried to provide a framework to, on how one might engage on, on, on social media. And the, this first pyramid on the left is a Bloom's taxonomy that Dr. A.O. Glasser had, had initially put in a paper some while back about, you know, you start with the basics, reading stuff that others put out, maybe retweeting somebody else's stuff. And then at the top of that taxonomy, creating your own content. But we try to add to that by talking about, you know, those Aristotle's lessons of, of rhetoric. You have to be persuasive. You have to tell a story, right? And so how you given examples of, of those principles uh, of rhetoric and how you might do that on social media to be effective. So again, if you're if you're sort of Twitter curious, but not, not engaged, I would encourage you to sort of take a look because we really want more people like the audience of this talk to be engaging there and, and, and fighting the good fight to get good information out on, on social media. So that's my last slide. Um, uh, so, you know, I think just to conclude, there are more options than ever to consume medical information. We go back to what do we want? We want timely, accurate, and easily accessible information. Um, I think journals are doing a better job to provide high quality peer reviewed content, but also having to remain mindful of readers changing consumption habits. We want it now, we want it easily accessible. And I think it is important for us to think about this as, as educators to guide trainees to preferred sources of accurate and accessible content because they're everyone, we're all doing it. And so I think giving some guidance um, as opposed to unsupervised use uh, will, will, will be very helpful. And so, again, I think this is an evolving conversation. It's a fascinating area. And if anybody has any um, questions, um, I'd love to hear them now. You can reach out to me. You can message me on Twitter or feel free to email me. And with that, I'll stop. And I'll